Hi, my name is Nicole Hager, and welcome to our women's Bible study over the book of Judges. I'm so glad that y'all are here. I wish we could do this in person and that I could see all of your faces, but I'm so thankful that we have technology that we can make this work, even when we're in the middle of this crazy worldwide pandemic. Um, I do want to take a few minutes to explain the format of the class before we start. Each session is going to have three elements. The first is that there's going to be homework. This is going to be a downloadable PDF on our website, and this is going to be the first thing that you do for each session. After the homework, you're going to listen to the teaching on our podcast. That's what this is right now. You're listening to the teaching for session one. So if you're listening to this and you have not done the homework yet, I really encourage you to go back and do the homework first. I think you'll get a lot more out of the class if you do the homework before listening to the teaching. So I encourage you to go back if you have not done that already. And then after you've done the homework and listened to the teaching, the third element is that you're going to be getting together with either your missional community or your fight club or any other group of women you're doing the study with, and you're gonna be going over some discussion questions to kind of really talk about and process what you've been learning or what God's been kind of revealing to you through the study. My hope in all of this is that you'll in some way be changed by the word of God as we work our way through the book of Judges. Um, I hear people all the time say things like the Old Testament is so unrelatable or it's so hard to understand or even that it's boring. And I really hope that you don't feel that way by the end of, by the end of this study. Um, I also hope that you leave the study with some tools that are going to help you as you dive into other books of the Bible. Um, you'll notice on the pre-class assignment that I kind of explained um, kind of the CIA method of studying. And that's something that I really hope that you guys kind of take to heart. And the idea is we like to really jump to application first a lot of the time. But a, a lot of time, if we're not taking the time to make sure that we've got our comprehension and our interpretation um, nailed down, we could be applying things incorrectly or shallowly. And so the C stands for comprehension. That's asking the question, what does this text say? The I is interpretation, that's asking what does this text mean? And then last comes application, how should this text change me? So we're gonna spend a lot of time in our homework um, and in our teaching time, really making sure that we fully have that comprehension step down and then also a little bit of the interpretation as well. Um, and then I'll also of course give time for application, but I wanna make sure that that application really hits the mark. Um, and so we're gonna focus a lot of time, more than you might be used to on the comprehension step. Um, you'll notice even on your assign on your homework, a lot of times I indicate what step that we're doing um, you'll see so many times that I say, okay, we're practicing making good observations because that's going to help us with our comprehension or we're practicing asking good questions because that's going to help us with our comprehension. Um, really, if there was one thing that you got good at during the study, it would be making good observations. I would be so happy if people left here feeling like they were better at observing things in the text because that out of all the things that you could do, that's the thing that's going to really help you in your study the most. Um, the thing that makes a good Bible teacher great is their ability to observe things in the text that most people wouldn't have noticed. And then they can take those observations and make really deep um, interpretations and applications that really, really challenge and convict us. So I really hope that um, making good observations is something that you guys can walk away from the study with kind of um, honing that skill a little bit. So before the class began, you were given a pre-class assignment. Um, I asked you all to read through the entire book of Judges and to do a little bit of background research to help give you some context to what we'll be studying. We're not gonna spend a ton of time going over that, but let's look at it just for a few minutes to make sure we're kind of all on the same page and we all know kind of what um, the context is around what we're gonna be studying. Um, so what do we know about Judges from this initial class prep? Well, we don't know for sure who it was written by. Um, it never actually tells us in the text, but scholars kind of think just from different clues in the text that it may have been Samuel. The same is kind of true of the date. It never tells us in the text, but a lot of times, um, a lot of scholars think that it was probably written during the time of the monarchy. The monarchy just means um, the time when God started um, giving the people, the Israelites, kings. And so what happens is kind of sometime after Judges, probably shortly after Judges, the people start crying out saying, we want a king, we want a king. And God says, I'm your king. And they say, no, like a person, like a real king, like the other nations. And so then God gives them kind of what they ask for. And he gives them Saul and then David. And so um, the time of the monarchy, that those first two kings, people think that's probably when the book of Judges was written. Um, the intended audience was um, most likely the Israelites, and this is kind of one of those questions that you could go to four different websites and they could kind of say four different thoughts of what the intended audience could have been. But I think that the most simple response is just that it was probably the Israelites, just to remind them of what God had done for them, despite their unfaithfulness time and time again. And then finally, 
Um, well, I guess we've got two more. The genre is historical narrative. So if you're not familiar with his idea of genre, um, every book of the Bible has a different genre and it's written in a different form. So some books might be a letter that was written to a whole group of people. Some books might be poetry or wisdom. Um, a lot of books are historical narrative. And so historical narrative just means that this is something that is tell a book that's telling us something that happened. Um, by nature, that makes it a text that is primarily descriptive and not prescriptive. So what does that mean? A lot of times um, we kind of fall into the trap of assuming that all of scripture should be prescriptive. In other words, all of scripture is telling us what we should do today, but that is just not true. Um, when things are historical narrative, they're primarily descriptive in nature. They're telling us what happened, um, not what we should do today. Um, this is kind of particularly important in a book like Judges because we're going to be dealing with some really hard stuff, namely the fact that God calls his people, the Israelites, to go and kill entire cities and people groups. Um, and yes, God told them to do that, but that is describing what happened in a particular period of time for a particular purpose. It in no way is prescribing what we should do today. God is not saying, and now you guys should do the same thing. Um, and that should be obvious, but there's been entire periods of history where that was not obvious to people. So a good skill to develop is always asking the text that you're reading, is this meant to be read in a descriptive manner or a prescriptive manner? And granted, there's a lot of things in the book of Judges that we are supposed to draw out and that are prescriptive, that we are supposed to take and be changed by and um, follow some certain instructions and wisdom, but primarily the book is descriptive. And lastly, where does it fit in the overall narrative of scripture? So I realize that we probably have a wide range of people who are listening to this. Some of you guys grew up in the church and are very familiar with kind of the general story of the Old Testament. I did not grow up in church, and so I'm always kind of having to fill in gaps and kind of figure out what order things happened in and who's whose son and all of this stuff. And so I'm going to just kind of give a very, very brief um, description of kind of like the events that lead up to the book of Judges. So for those of you who don't know or that do, God had a group of people called the Israelites. They were his people, and they were enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. I think it was over 400 years that they were slaves in Egypt. Um, and then God, he sends Moses to free his people and to take his people out of Egypt, and he's going to lead them into the promised land. We've heard so many places in the Old Testament. God is promising his people, I've got this land for you. I'm preparing this land for you, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he sends Moses. He does all sorts of miracles, sends all these plagues. The, free, the people are finally freed from Egypt. Um, they're led over to the Red Sea, and that's when Pharaoh decides, no, I want you to come back. And so he kind of pursues them, and God parts the sea. The Israelites are able to go through, and then God kind of crashes the sea down on Pharaoh so that the Israelites are safe. And so these people have seen some major, major miracles. Um, and then it does not take long for them to start doubting and showing a lack of faith and complaining and griping and um, it kind of gets so bad that basically God says, no, none of you guys even get to go into the promised land. Like your kids are going to go. You guys get to wander the desert for 40 years because of your lack of faith and you have rejected the land, which I promised you. So the Israelites, after being slaves for 400 years, finally are kind of led by huge miracles. Um, and then they want like out of slavery. Then they wander for 40 years. And then finally, the book of Joshua comes right before the book of Judges, and the book of Joshua is when they are finally able to enter the promised land. They have a great miraculous victory at Jericho, um, so it's been a long time coming, and then that brings us to now in Judges. So while Joshua, the previous book, kind of tells of them initially taking the land, Judges is going to tell of a second wave as they kind of move towards trying to fully possess the land. So Canaan was really large. There were several cities within it. And even though they had entered the promised land at this point, it was not fully theirs. Most of the Canaanite cities were still there. It'd be kind of like if you were promised Oklahoma and you get to Oklahoma City and you're like, yeah, we got to Oklahoma, but you hadn't touched Norman or Moore or any of the other cities. And so here in Judges, we're going to see all these separate tribes of Israel start to follow up on the previous conquest and start to settle the territories that have been assigned to them. So that's our context in a nutshell. That's where we find ourselves as we jump in. Hopefully you'll find that taking the time to do that little bit of research really helps to ground you as we start to study these different sections of Judges. And again, like a lot of the things that we're going to be doing in this class, this is something that you can apply to studying any of the books of the Bible. Um, I hear women say a lot, oh, yeah, I really want to start studying something just on my own, but I just don't even know where to start. 
well, this is where you start. This is a great place to start. Just read through the book in as many sittings as it takes and then answer these basic questions. Um, you'll know, like it was called reading the envelope is kind of what it's called in your pre-class assignment. And so that is a great way to start studying um, any book of the Bible. So let's dive in. Today we're gonna be in chapter one, all the way to chapter three, verse six. Um, this section is basically the prologue or the introduction of the book. You kind of see in your homework, I kind of laid out a rough outline for you. We've got this section, which is the introduction, and then there's kind of five main cycles of judges, and then there's kind of the conclusion section of the book. So we're gonna be in that introduction section today, and in this section that we're in today, we're gonna see the same story told twice, and each time it's gonna be told from a different perspective and for a different person purpose. So we're gonna go ahead and begin with the first account starting in chapter one, verse one. Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So we're off to a good start. Are already inquiring of the Lord. The Lord gave some pretty clear instructions. Verse 3. Then Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I in turn will go with you into the territory allotted you. So Simeon went with him. Okay, I'm going to pause for just a second. What did God tell the tribe of Judah to do? He said, Go up into this land, and I've given this land into your hand. What did the tribe of Judah actually do? Did they go directly to do God, what God had said? Not exactly. We kind of see that before obeying God, they kind of take a little detour and go and ask one of their brother tribes to come with them, the tribe of Simeon. Now, at first glance, this just seems like, oh, well, that makes sense. I mean, militarily, it's a good decision. It's a good, you know, a good move to kind of get more people to fight with you. Like, why wouldn't you want to do that? But what's really happening that we're really seeing here is kind of a lack of faith spiritually because just remember they just seen some amazing amazing miraculous things when god had um, brought them into the promised land initially and you would think that if you had witnessed the things that they had witnessed that it would be easy for you to say oh well god said that he's going to give them to me he's going to give them to me and i'm going to go but the fact that they had to go and and kind of get some help just instead of trusting what the Lord had promised them, they wanted the help of a person, it's kind of showing this lack of faith spiritually. Um, it's not terrible. They're still mostly following what God has told them to do, but we're only three verses in, and we're not really getting off to the best start. Um, Tim Keller, in his um, commentary on Judges, kind of describes Judah's action here as what he calls half-hearted discipleship. Um, because, again, it's just a lack of faith spiritually. Um, so let's move on. Verse 4. What happens now? And Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 men at Bezek. And they found Adoni Bezek in Bezek and fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adoni Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Okay, I'm going to pause again because I really don't want you to miss what's happening here. What did Judah do to the Canaanite king of this area? Did he wipe him out like God had instructed him, instructed him to? No, he did not. So what did the tribe of Judah do? Well, they cut off his, tongue, his thumbs and his big toes. This is something that um, this king had done to many of his enemies. So um, at first glance, when you read this, it's kind of like, oh, well, that makes sense. You know, an eye for an eye. He's just trying to trying to make sure justice is done um, and it kind of doesn't seem like that big of a deal but this is a very big deal because what we are seeing is that the tribe of Judah is treating this king the way a Canaanite treats those who they conquer so in your homework I had you read a section from the book of Joshua where God gave specific instructions to the Israelites and what did we learn from our reading there does God want the Israelites to in any way act like Canaanites no, I hope that that is super clear that God does not want the Israelites to act like Canaanites. The whole reason for wiping the Canaanites out is so that his people will not in any way be influenced by them or be like them. This is not simply an eye for an eye. They're already conforming to the practices of the people that God has so clearly warned them about. So when they cut off the thumbs and the big toes of the king that they were supposed to kill, not only are they not obeying God by not killing him, they've already begun to take on the evil practices of the people that God is trying to protect them from. 
don't miss the significance of this. We are very early on in the book and already they're kind of starting to act a little bit like Canaanites. So let's take another pause here and ask the question, well, what is it about the Canaanites that was so bad? Like, why would it be so bad to have the Canaanites around? Why is it so, why are they so bad that God wants them to be completely wiped out? We're not going to go into a ton of detail on this. Um, this is something that is a really, really hard thing to wrestle with. And I think a lot of people um, just have a hard time with the book of Judges and really the whole Old Testament because of really this whole idea. Um, so um, we're just going to touch on it briefly, but I do want to acknowledge that it's not as simplistic as I might be trying to make it. And I know that some of you guys might be wrestling a lot with this, and I hope that you're able to kind of work some of that out as you discuss a little bit in your MCs. And please come and find me, and I would love to kind of point you to some resources too, just to kind of help you as you kind of dig into this a little bit, if this is something that you're wrestling with. But just to kind of um, give it in a nutshell what um, the Canaanites were like, we see a lot of references in scripture to a lot of different things about the Canaanites, and really none of them are good. One of the main things is that they practice child sacrifice, and this is something that you'll find not only in scripture, but just in archaeology in general. I think that that's kind of well known across the board that the Canaanites practice child sacrifice. And um, it's not just that they had like these few isolated instances. It was a very big part of their culture. Um, there's also a lot of mentions of sorcery, of witchcraft, of bestiality, and then a lot of religious prostitution that were taking place in the temples. Um, and again, these weren't just isolated incidences or a few people here and there. This would have been so prominent that this is the, how they were known. They were a people as, who were known as practicing these things. Just to kind of give you kind of like a little picture of what it could have been like, um, those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament might remember back in Genesis the story of Sodom. Basically, there was a city named Sod called Sodom, and it was a really, really evil city. Like, there was just horrible things going on there. People were wicked, doing terrible things, and God, um, he was going to wipe it out. And so Abraham, you know, being the good guy Abraham was, he just said, well, God, I mean, what if, what if there's righteous people in Sodom? Could you save it? Like, what if there's 50 righteous people in Sodom? Would you save it for 50? And God was like, well, yeah, if there were 50 righteous people in Sodom, I would not destroy it. I would save it. And then Abraham was like, okay, good, good. Um, well, what if there's 45? What if there's 45 people? Would you save it for 45? And God was like, well, yes, I would save it for 45. And he was like, okay, what about if there's 40? And he keeps going lower and lower until finally he says, God, what if there was only 10 righteous people in the entire city of Sodom? Would you save the city for 10 righteous people? And God says, if there were 10 people that were righteous in that city, I would save it. And for those of you who are not familiar with it, there were not even 10 righteous people in the city. And so God ended up wiping out the city um, because it was time for him to enact his justice on that city. Um, I was not, I had never really thought about this before, but um, just through researching, Sodom was actually in Canaan. Like it was a Canaanite city. And so if you kind of want a picture of what all of Canaan might have been like, you can kind of see a little bit of that in the story of Sodom. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 5 says, It is not for your righteousness, this is God talking to the Israelites, he says, It is not for your righteousness or for the people, oh wait, or for the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess their land. It is because of the wickedness of these nations, the nations of Canaan, that the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So in other words, God is saying, it's not because you guys are so great or that because you guys are so righteous that I'm giving you this land. It's because Canaan is so evil that I need to en like enact my justice on them. And so that is why I'm doing this. Um, this wasn't just like a situation where God was like, ah, got to find some land for my people. Let's kill the Canaanites. Like that's not it at all. The Canaanites were a city or a group of people or a land that needed to be dealt with. And this is the way that God chose to do that. Um, a lot of people might argue, well, this is genocide. Like, is God having the Israelites commit genocide? Um, and that's, there's a couple of clues in the text that kind of just really kind of show us that that's not what's happening here. This wasn't some sort of ethnic cleansing. Um, there's a couple of reasons that we can know that for sure. One of those is there was a group of people called the Kenites. The Kenites were not Israelites, but they were friends of the Israelites. They were kind of distant cousins in a way. And so the Kenites came along with the Israelites and settled in the promised land with them, alongside them. And if this were an ethnic cleansing, then they wouldn't have allowed this other people group to kind of come in and settle with them. Um, another way that we can know this is um, back in the book of Joshua, when they were spying out the land, 
um, before they kind of entered the promised land, there was a prostitute, a Canaanite prostitute named Rahab. And Rahab kind of professes faith in God and ends up helping them. And they let Rahab live and let her stay. If this was an ethnic cleansing, they would never have allowed a Canaanite prostitute to live or to stay, um, whether she converted to their faith or not. So we know because of these kind of things that this was not genocide. This was not an ethnic cleansing. It had a different purpose. Um, some people also might think, well, this is just some imperialistic conquest. Like they're just wanting to become greater and get more stuff and more wealth. Um, but it couldn't have been that either because they were not allowed to take any plunder or any slaves. Um, so all the things that make up in an imperialistic conquest, they weren't even allowed to do. So it wasn't either of those things. What was really going on? Well, the goal was for Israel to live in covenant faithfulness to the Lord. They were supposed to be a holy people set apart for God's purposes. And so for that to happen, the land had to be cleared from all forms of idolatry. Um, like I heard one person say, that doesn't mean that the conquest is going to be palatable. Like the Bible never claims that it's going to be easy to digest. Um, but the Bible does insist that it was just. Um, we serve a very loving God, but we also serve a very just God. And we kind of like to think about the love of God, but not so much the justice of God. But why is that? We would never apply that same thinking to our own governments. Like if there was a courtroom and there was a judge who consistently let murderers and rapists go free without any kind of penalty, we would never sit there and say, oh, what a great judge. He's so loving. Like, no, our hearts cry out for justice. We feel like justice needs to be served. But for some reason, we don't like to accept that God is a just God and that he will enact justice on who he is going to enact justice on. And so we don't like to kind of, we kind of hold God to a different standard um, in our minds than we, we would our own legal system um, as far as justice goes. And so what we see in the book of Judges, in the middle of kind of so many stories and books in the Bible where we see God's love so clearly, here we're seeing God's justice very, very clearly. Um, even in the book of Exodus, when God is telling his people about the land that he has for them, um, he says about the Canaanites, They shall not live in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Snare is also worded fatal trap in another translation. So really, he's just saying, like, you can't be among the Canaanites. Like, you'll, it'll, it's death for you is what it is. Um, so let's go ahead and move on. Hopefully that kind of helps a little bit as you wrestle through this. But again, I know that this is a hard thing to chew on. So I encourage you guys just to work this out a little bit more in your MCs as well. Okay. Let's pick it back up in chapter 8 and kind of see what happens after this. Then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the sons of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country and in the Negev and in the lowland. In the lowland. So Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Cariath Arba. And they struck Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. Then from there he went against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir formerly was Cariath Sephir. And Caleb said, The one who attacks Cariath Sephir and who captures it, I will even give him my daughter Aksaf for a wife. Okay, let's pause again and we're going to practice asking good questions. The way that Caleb is brought up, it kind of feels like maybe we should know who he is because it doesn't really introduce him. It just says, And Caleb said, and that's not really how you introduce a character for the first time. So anytime a character is introduced that you aren't familiar with, a good question to ask is, who is this person? So let's ask, who is Caleb? Um, so back in Numbers, I'm going to go ahead and just kind of tell you who Caleb is here. But we find, we learn all this in Numbers. It's chapters 13 and 14 if anybody wants to kind of look it up on their own later. But I'm going to read a couple of sections. Basically what's happening back in Numbers in this account is that Moses is sending out some spies to check out the promised land before they kind of try to enter it. So they've been freed from Egypt. Um, they're kind of, you know, have been wandering and like not for too long yet, but then Moses sends out some spies because they finally make it to Canaan. He's sending out spies to see what it's like before they enter it. And guess who one of the spies was? It was Caleb. So Caleb was one of the men sent out to spy on the land, and then they returned to tell Moses and then the rest of the Israelites what they saw. So I'm going to read from Numbers what happened when they returned. So I'm going to read a portion out of chapter 13. It says, Thus they told him, so the spies are telling Moses, Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. 
So in other words, they came to Moses and they were like, yeah, the land is everything God said it was be. It's amazing. Okay, then they say, nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. So in other words, yeah, the land is great, but look at all these people. They're big and scary. Like we can't do this. It's kind of what they're saying. So then Caleb, here's our guy. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it for we shall surely overcome it. So Caleb is kind of this picture of faith when everybody's doubting. Can we do this? We can't do this. And Caleb is like, yeah, we can do this. God has told us we can do this. And then it says in verse 31, but the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go against the people. They're too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. So what happens here is, Caleb is saying, believe God, trust God. We can take this. God has given them to us. And all the people say, no, they're way too scary. You know what? We're going to lie to the Israelites and just tell them that God lied. And this is not the land that he promised us. And so they kind of go to the Israelites and they give a bad report of the land, say that the land is devouring its inhabitants and we can't do this. So I'm going to summarize what happens next. Um, all the Israelites kind of lift up their voices and cry and they're upset and they're grumbling and they're angry and they start to say, why did the Lord bring us here? He brought us here to die. Um, it would be better if we were still slaves in Egypt. And then the Israelites decide, hey, let's appoint a new leader to take us back to Egypt. Like what in the world is happening here? So then what happens? Um, this is obviously not looking good here. And so then verse six of chapter 14. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land, and he will give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So... In the middle of the entire nation of Israel, panicking, saying, let's go back. All the spies have kind of lied to them. There are two people who are this picture of faith and righteousness, and it's Caleb and Joshua. And they stand up and kind of try to speak truth and remind them of who God is. And what do they do? Verse 10, but all the congregation said to stone them with stones. So we see Caleb is up against a lot here, but he still stands firm. He is a good man man of faith. And then I'm going to kind of jump ahead a little bit. What's God's response to this whole situation that just happened? Um, in verse 30, back in Numbers, he says, God says to his people, the Israelites, he says, surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you have said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they shall know the land which you have rejected. So basically what happens is their faith is so poor here and the only ones that stand up and have faith in God and that he is who he says he is and that he's going to do what he says he's going to do are Caleb and Joshua. So God basically says, none of you guys get to go in the promised land. You have rejected it. It is no longer yours. The only two that I'm going to let in from your generation that are alive right now are Caleb and Joshua. Other than that, it's going to be all your kids. You don't get to anymore. So What's this picture of Caleb? He's a good man. He is an upstanding, outstanding, amazing man, a man of faith who trusts God, even when he's surrounded by people who lack faith. His faith stands in such great contrast to those he's surrounded by that God said he's one of the few people that's going to be able to enter the promised land. That is huge. And then we kind of see him do something that seems a little bit confusing. He says, I'm going to give my daughter to whoever can, can, can defeat this place. And so um, that kind of sounds like, wait a minute, wait, what? I mean, that kind of feels a little bit like he's using his daughter for his own benefit. It feels kind of abusive in a way. And so we're going to take a look at that and kind of see what is really happening with this. I kind of asked you in your homework how this part of the story made you feel. I'm guessing a lot of you guys maybe didn't have a very favorable response towards him. I know the first time I read it, I didn't. I was like, who's this Caleb? What a jerk, you know? And so because really we're looking at it through the lenses of our own culture. 
we know because of this previous account of who Caleb is, and anybody reading the book of Judges would have known who Caleb was, and they would have been seeing him through the eyes of a man of faith who stands above the rest of the Israelites because of he was able to stand firm when everybody else was wavering. So what's really happening here? Is he using his daughter as an object for his own purposes? Is he a terrible father? Not at all. Caleb knows that whoever is able to do this task will have proven himself in many ways. Like, this was not the same as our culture. In our culture, we get to fall in love and marry whoever we want. Um, but in the culture of the Israelites, people fell, uh, people got married to whoever their parents arranged their marriage with. Marriages were arranged, and they were arranged based on basically what match is going to most benefit this family. That was just the way that it worked in that culture. So as a father, Caleb had this responsibility of choosing a suitable husband for his daughter. And he was such a good father. He wanted the best for her. He knew that by saying, whoever can defeat this land um, gets my daughter, he was saying that he wanted the best for her, the bravest for her, the strongest for her, and most importantly, the most faithful. Because what have we seen? The people who are able to kind of step forward and kind of just do what God has called them to do are those who have faith that God is who he says he is and is going to do what he says he's going to do. So Caleb is ruling out anybody who is not proving themselves faithful to God. Um, so we're not seeing a picture of a woman being abused here. We're seeing a picture of a woman being really well cared for by a really good dad. But we're not only seeing this woman in regards to what other people do to her or for her, we're also seeing something about her and her character as well. Because after she's given in marriage, which we'll kind of read this part in a second, we're going to see her do something. So let's go ahead and, and see what happens next. So I'll go back to verse 12 again. And Caleb said, The one who attacks Carithe's Sapphire and captures it, I will even give him my daughter Aksaf for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, yes, that means they're cousins, so... That's fun. Um, he captured it, so he gave him his daughter, Aksaf, for a wife. Then it came about when she came to him that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. Then she alighted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have given me the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the son of Judah, to the wilderness of Judah, which is in the south of Arad, and they went and lived with the people. So, what do we see happening here? After she's given in marriage, she boldly asks her father for more blessings. She asks him for this land, but then also streams of water, and then he gives them to her freely. Now, this isn't just a simple, hey, can I have some land, Dad? And then he gives them to her. This is a picture of her faith in God because she's believing that God is going to give her what he promised. Back in Deuteronomy 8, 7 says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams of water, springs, and deep water sources flowing in both valleys and hills. So in asking for these streams of water, she's showing she believes that the Lord is going to give her what he promised. She, she really believes that the Lord wants to settle the land and that she is to enjoy the blessings that he promised. So we're giving a picture of a woman who's of faith, who's trusting that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. And look how she ends up. She's enjoying the blessings of the land because her and her family and her people settle into the area that is allotted to them and they get to enjoy the blessings that God has to promise to them. So with Caleb and his family, we're given this picture of this faithful family who believes God's promises and receives his blessings. So let's move on and see if the rest of Israel is inspired by Caleb's family and follows suit. We're going to pick back up in verse 17. And this, the rest of this part of this chapter, we're going to go through a little bit faster. And I want you to start to notice kind of a, there's going to be like a pretty significant downward spiral that's about to start. So let's pick it up in 17. Then Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they struck the Canaanites living in Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. And Judah took Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. Now the Lord was with Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. Um, just to give you like just a little bit of information about this is iron chariots were kind of the most technologically advanced warfare of the time. So yes, for a human perspective, iron chariots would be pretty scary. But remember, these people have seen God work crazy miracles. So some iron chariots they should know would be no match for their God. But what do we see? Oh, we couldn't do it. There was iron chariots. 
Okay, well that's not a good sign that that's kind of, that something like that is stopping them already. Okay, verse 20. Then they gave Hebron to Caleb as Moses had promised, and he drove out from there the three sons of Anak. But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So we see this like Canaanite people group is now dwelling among the sons of Benjamin. That's obviously a little bit worse even. So likewise, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph spied out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will treat you kindly. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all of his family go free. And the man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city and named it Luz, which is its name to this day. Okay, so notice here that not only, again, are they not obeying because they let this man go free, but what did the man do? He went and built an entire new Canaanite city. So now not only are they failing to wipe out the cities that they're supposed to wipe out, they're allowing a whole nother city to be built. Okay, not on a good track here. Verse 27. But Manasseh did not take possession of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. So the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. So we're not even kind of seeing like the, you know, the Canaanites are living among them. It's just saying the Canaanites persisted in living in the land. And then it came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. So in other words, even when they got strong enough, they still didn't try to drive them out. They decided to make them slaves. Again, did, it, did God ever tell them to make them slaves? No, he did not. Okay. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Aksib or of Helbah or of Aphek or of Rahab. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites. Oh, did you see that? Earlier, it said that that people group, the Canaanite people group, was living among the Israelite group. Here, it has been reversed. So now we see the Asherites, which is the Israelite group, are living among the Canaanites. The Canaanites are in the inhabitants of the land, and now the Israelites are living among them. That is a very, very big distinction there. We are going downhill quickly, um, for they did not drive them out. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. And the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced labor for them. Then the Amorites forced the son of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. Yet the Amorites persisted in living in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, and in Shalbim. Shalbim. But when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, they became forced labor. Labor, And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Thela and upward. Okay. We have seen a pretty big downward spiral. We have seen a really big digression from, first off, not fully following instructions because the tribe of Judah asked their brother to help them, to later on, oh, we can't do it, there's iron chariots, to later on, well, we're just gonna kind of be here, but let some of them live amongst us, to by the end, um, we're gonna live amongst the Canaanites now, to uh, we just couldn't do it. So this has been a pretty significant downward spiral. I kind of in your homework had you kind of fill out a chart on the times that they obeyed God fully and did not. And hopefully you can see this is going to be a very lopsided chart because they pretty much for the most part did not obey God fully. There are very few times that they did obey fully. So we're going to kind of jump to chapter two now and see that something is going to shift here. We're going to start to see a change in the way that things are described. Um, Right now, at the beginning of chapter 2, an angel of the Lord is going to come, and he's going to start interpreting everything that just happened in chapter 1. Um, we kind of see, like, at the in chapter, well, let's go ahead and just read this first, and then we'll get there. Okay. So, now an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And it came about when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, that the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bochim, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. And then something kind of strange happens. In verse 6 it says, when Joshua had dismissed the people, but wait a minute, we saw at the beginning of chapter 1 that Joshua dies at the beginning of chapter 1. So 
we know what's happening here is we're hearing a new account. We're gonna kind of go back in chapter one, we heard an account of what happened. And so now we're gonna hear this another account of a different perspective of what happened. This is a common literary tool in which the same account is told more than once. We've seen it other places in the Bible, including the creation count, account in Genesis. So anytime a story is gonna to be told twice, we have to ask the question, why? Remember, we're learning to ask good questions here. What do we gain from the second account that we didn't get from the first? So in this case, the account of the events in chapter one was very much showing us from a human perspective what happened. They attacked, they didn't drive them out, they couldn't do it, there were chariots, da 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 da. So now in chapter two, what's happening is that we're gonna get a heavenly perspective on what was actually happening spiritually. So another way to put it is chapter one described what the people did and chapter two described what God was doing. Um, so now chapter two is gonna interpret the significance of the events in chapter one. We can see really obviously the difference in the two accounts by kind of comparing verse 119 with verse 2 too. In verse 119, it is said that the Israelites were unable to drive them out. Like in other words, we couldn't do it. But then in 2.2, God's assessment of that same situation is, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? So the way Tim Keller kind of puts this in his commentary is he's kind of saying, hey, while the Israelites claimed we could not, God replies, you would not. So that is a very big difference. Um, let's look at the rest of chapter two and kind of get at more of a grip of what God's assessment is of what happened. So I'm gonna pick up in verse six here of chapter two. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in timnah in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Okay, so after the death of Joshua, we see immediately that the very next generation of people did not know the Lord nor the work he had done for Israel. Think about the significance of this. Like an entire generation saw firsthand God's provision and his miracles as he gave them the promised land after leading them out of slavery. And now none of their children know him. That is no small detail. This doesn't really mean that they weren't told about God or had no head knowledge of what he had done for their fathers but more likely this is interpreted that they had no regard for, or they cared nothing for God. Um, so they knew about God, they just didn't really care for what he had done for them. He had no influence over them, which kind of makes you wonder, well, if God didn't have influence over them, who did? Well, think of the land that they have just been um, living in without having driven out all the people. Where do you think that they're being influenced by? Okay, let's go to chapter two, verse 11 and continue on. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies." Okay, uh, let's do one more verse. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them. So they were severely distressed. So we're gonna practice again asking good questions. We see here that they had started serving somebody else. They kind of mention here Baal and Ashtaroth. So if we wanna understand the significance of this, we have to ask the simple question, well, who or what were the Baals and the Ashtaroths? So, as I researched this, all the sources kind of varied just slightly in kind of how they described it, um, but it was essentially centered around this idea that Baal was the storm god and Ashtaroth was the fertility goddess, or maybe Baal was the storm and the fertility god and Ashtaroth was more of his female counterpart. But however it actually kind of laid itself out, it kind of came down to fertility um, and like reigning, being able to like kind of raining on the land to give crops the fertility that it needed. Because if you think about it, the Canaanite survival depended on the fertility of both their crops and their families. So their worship kind of centered around doing what was required to have that fertility be blessed by their gods. 
So the way that Baal and Ashtaroth were believed to bring flourishing to crops was by having sex with each other. So um, the Canaanites created a form of worship where they wanted to ensure that Baal and Ashtaroth were copulating often because that was, was what was going to bless their land. So how, you might wonder, would they kind of convince the gods to be doing that? Well, the way that they came up with was at their temples where they go to worship, there's female prostitutes. Those were kind of to represent Ashtaroth. And then the men of the city would come to those temple prostitutes and they would represent Baal. And then they would have sex with the prostitutes. And the idea was that they were practicing what they wanted the gods to do. And thus they were encouraging the real Baal and Ashtaroth, or the real in quotation marks, the Baal and Ashtaroth to keep copulating and ensuring bountiful crops and flourishing. So hopefully it's obvious that this was not a practice that God would have wanted his Israelites to embrace. Um, but you can also kind of see how for some Israelites that might have seemed kind of attractive. Like what I get to do what during worship? You know, not everybody obviously, but um, you can see how that could have been enticing to some of the men in that culture. But the damage of this practice and the damage of the Israelites being immersed in this practice wasn't only because they'd be engaging in sexual sin by regularly having sex with prostitutes, although that is plenty of damaging in and of itself, but even more than that, they would be trusting in something other than the God of the Bible and of Yahweh to provide and bring blessings. Like we have seen in the entire like narrative leading up to this God proving that he is the God over nature. He can make it rain when he wants it to rain. He can provide food when he wants to provide food. And so when they're kind of embracing this Canaanite culture by worshiping the balls and the astros, what they're saying is, nah, God's not going to take care of me. God's not the one who's going to bring the rain. These guys are. So they're looking for something. They're looking to something other than God to provide and bring blessings and flourishings um, and to really like kind of, you know, even commanding it over nature. So this is pretty significant. So let's continue on picking it up back in 15. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken, and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. And yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers and following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. Um, when I was in high school, I kind of hated gym class. Like it was my least favorite. And I always remember... We had to do push-ups, I think like 20 push-ups, which to me felt like torture. And I remember that I would sit like, sit, be there like on my hands and feet or whatever, and I would just be like watching the, t the gym teacher, and I would only do the push-ups if she was watching. But then as soon as she turned around, I would just kind of lay on the floor. And that's kind of what the Israelites are doing here. Like when they have a judge to like be leading them and kind of bringing them back into the Lord, they're following that judge. But as soon as that judge dies, they become more corrupt than they were before. They go back to their evil ways. So clearly these judges are not causing a heart change in the Israelites. Their actions are following the judge for a while, but then they just go back and become even worse than they were. They're not truly experiencing heart change. So verse 20, so the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So we see the Lord eventually just kind of chooses to let a lot of these nations of Canaan remain um, for the purpose of testing Israel, to test their faith, to show their true nature. Um, this is a great kind of question to ask yourself is what things has God allowed into my life to test my faith or to show my true nature? So kind of getting to a little bit of application here. Okay, let's see how this introduction section ends. I'm going to read this this. Chapter 3, um, 1 through 6 is kind of the ending of our introduction section. It says, Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, 
only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced formerly. These nations are the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonite, Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebohamath. And they were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. And the sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Okay, compare that last verse to how things started out back in 2 verse 7. 2 verse 7 says, this is all before all this started, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. So now we've gone from the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua to 3 verse 6. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. We have seen an incredible downward spiral. God has just led his people out of slavery, through the wilderness and into the promised land, performing miracles right and left for all to see. And now one generation removed, we see that his people are lost again. They're not lost in the physical wilderness like they were before, but they're definitely lost in a spiritual one. They know about what God's done for their parents, but they don't know him. They don't trust him. They're submerged completely in the culture of the people their parents did not drive out. In this way, I kind of think we're not so different from the Israelites because we're also surrounded by a culture that wants to pull us from truly knowing and trusting our God. It's going to look a little different. Our culture is not going to do this by way of sex rituals or child sacrifice, um, but our idols look a little bit different. For us, it might be the lure of the promise of comfort and wealth, or the desire to be approved of by others, or the need to control every aspect of our lives and our families' lives. We overwork, we overschedule, and we try to grab onto all these empty promises that the world can offer us. And all the while, we slowly drift away from our heavenly calling, which is to know God and to make Him known. We are God's people, and we're here for God's purposes. But we're so often wooed by the culture that surrounds us that we find ourselves living as though we're our own people, here for whatever purposes we want. Do you still feel like the Old Testament isn't relatable to us? Do you still think we can't learn from books like Judges? I pray that you can see why we need all of Scripture and that our time in this book will draw you away from the idols of the world and back to the one true God who loves you and cares for you and has a purpose for you during your time here on earth. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you particularly for the books that we often overlook, but that have so much to offer us, Lord God. Thank you for the book of Judges and what we can gain from it. I pray that as we leave here, we would be changed by your word and that we would truly apply ourselves to studying these next several sessions, Lord, that we would get everything out of the study that you want us to get out of it. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to re um, have our eyes opened to the idols that we turn to instead of you. And I pray that your spirit would be constantly drawing us back um, to you, the only one who can truly satisfy. It's in your name we pray. Amen.